looking for the book of Ecclesiastes. You look in the middle of your Bible, basically, for the book of Psalms, and then the book of Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes comes right after that. It was two weeks ago that we introduced this sermon series entitled Under the Sun, and now now we're coming back to it again. It's a... uh, Ecclesiastes, I've been joking with Ryan regularly. So like, whose idea was this again to go through this book? Uh, It's a a challenge, challenging book, and we need help. And and there's a trusted um, friend that that we've looked to, and I've referred to him several times in our first sermon. I'm going to mention him again. We'll probably keep pointing you to him. But here's his book. This is uh, called Recovering Eden by Zach Eswine, and uh, Zach is a very gifted writer, but he's also a very uh, sound theologian, and one of the reasons I think I I trust him so much is that I know that he has suffered greatly, personally, and I I think that those who have gone through deep, deep waters are people that um, we want to hear from, we want to learn from. The, the, the journey that God has put them on is, uh, makes them uniquely uh, capable of um, being faithful guides for those of us that the world just doesn't always fit neatly. And thus is the book of Ecclesiastes. Not for, it, it's a trying book for those who really like things black and white. It's, it's, it's more for those of us whose favorite color is plaid, uh, something like that. And uh, Zach Eswine counsels us. He says, learning how to handle this book is an exercise itself. Training us to wait and travel on amid unanswered and everyday unpleasantness found in our real worlds. The book intends to train us in our capacity for waiting upon God amid the uncomfortably unfixed. That little phrase, the, the uncomfortably unfixed, is probably a, a phrase that we'll, we'll get used to thinking about and saying many times over the course of the next few months. That's the goal in this sermon series. Our, our goal is to be trained, to be doers of the word, not just kind of infuse ourselves with more information we want to be doers our aim is is an enlarged capacity for trusting god while waiting and traveling on amid the uncomfortably unfixed the whole point of the book of ecclesiastes i I would say in a nutshell is this world cannot be leveraged to suit oneself This world cannot be leveraged to suit oneself. And again, that's a troubling notion for those of us who like everything neat and organized and well managed. That message is about as contrarian as to our personal and global nature as one can get. But as for the original audience of Ecclesiastes, God does not intend for us to to live or remain as a naive people. God wants his sons and daughters, in particular, 
to be wise toward all that is under the sun, all that we experience in this created world, this side of heaven. And he intends to train us then to gain increased stamina through learning slowly and uncomfortably. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's slow, uncomfortable training. And in it we gain strength and stamina. Zach Eswine illustrates that intention this way. Instead of stopping someone who tells us that they hate life, maybe we're supposed to listen to the unanswered moment and enter the discomfort with the language or silence that God gives us. Maybe we're meant to ask, what is it about things under the sun that makes this person of God say he or she hates life? Perhaps we are meant as God's people to learn how to enter such things with him or her. God seems to believe that if we are to learn how to wisely do life, then our systematic categories, answers to every question, tidy explanations, formal language, deductive assumptions, and a resistance to what is subjective will not prove adequate for us. for people whose favorite color is plaid. <laughs> um, I, I guess I would say with Zach Eswine, that, that's, really, that's precisely what God means to accomplish among us through the strange book of Ecclesiastes. Namely, that we might be slow to speak, quick to listen, faithful in entering the uncomfortably unfixed matters of life alongside one another in the same way that he, through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, does with us. So let's continue our training. I'm going to invite you to follow along. And I'm going to read um, a little longer text here, uh, beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to go all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 26. But I'm just going to read right now the first and the last paragraphs. I'm going to read... Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 14, and then 2, 24 to 26. Please give your attention to God's word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also 
I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from Him, who can eat? Or who can have employment? I'm sorry, enjoyment. Employment too. For to the one who pleases Him, to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Puzzling statements. Puzzling observations. Disorienting. That's what I think that you're doing intentionally, Lord, through this book. You mean to be disruptive to our common perspective, the things that we're sort of used to. For in disrupting and disorienting, you get our attention and you take us to places in our faith that we haven't gone before. And so, Lord, this book is an illustration of real life. There there are many in this room here today whose lives, because of transition, because of change, because of trials and hardships, because of unasked for pain, find themselves uh, needing to reorient and off balance because of it. And Lord, thank you that you have given us a book like Ecclesiastes that addresses us in those very places. And so I pray that you'd make your word useful to us and pray that you'd bring illumination. Pray that you'd come by your Holy Spirit and work among us. I pray, Lord, that you would heal the brokenhearted. Pray that you'd give hope to those who are waiting waiting for things to stabilize again. Pray that you'd give people a sense of home, a sense of place where they can locate themselves in the security of all that you are for them through Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, it was in his book, um, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that Doug Adams writes about Deep thought. Deep thought is this. Uh, it's this powerful supercomputer, um, and deep thought, the supercomputer, is tasked with determining the answer to life, the universe, everything. And it takes the computer a long time to to check and double check its computations, seven and a half million years to be exact. But eventually. It spits out a simple, unambiguous answer. The meaning of life is 42. 42? Someone yells at this computer. I mean, is that that all you've got to show for seven and a half million years' work? Checked it out very thoroughly, deep thought replies. And that quite definitely is the answer. 
I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is that you've never actually known what the question is. Everyone wants to know the meaning of life, but to get the right answer, we have to ask the right question. And this is the quest of Ecclesiastes. And the question Ecclesiastes presses upon us specifically, particularly, is what is our end? For only as we take the one thing, the very one thing, the only thing in the future that is certain, namely our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our life experience, and to frame them through the perspective of the end, namely our end, do we arrive at the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Now my goal this morning is to show you one thing from the text of Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 2.26. My, my one aim is to persuade you that life is a gift from God intended to be enjoyed, not mastered. That's it. Life is a gift from God intended to be enjoyed, but not mastered. The operative phrase is not mastered. Because we don't have a problem accepting that life is to be enjoyed. That comes natural. In fact, that is a God-given part of our nature. God made us that way. He designed us to to enjoy, to feel pleasure, and to pursue it. Further, as the people of God, we have little problem accepting as truth that life is a gift from God. But here's here's the rub. And this is where Ecclesiastes purposefully and unsettlingly bursts our bubble. Life is not meant to be mastered by us. All the managers in the room, hold on, just hold on. Say it another way, God's will for us is contentment not control. Now that is a simple and unambiguous assertion, but it, it is a reality that every human being relentlessly resists. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, the preacher made this point uh, through just brute fact. It says it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 26, he makes the point again, but this time now through personal testimony. He's describing his own experience. Look again at chapter 1, verses 13, 14. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen 
everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. So God is the giver of life. And, and if you aim to master what He gives, control, if, you, if your aim is to master what He gives, to control what He gives, you may as well try to grab smoke in your hand and put it in your pocket and save it for later. Life experience confirms that that attempt is an unhappy business. But if, if you get comfortable, if you can get comfortable with God being God, then you will discover, according to Ecclesiastes 2.24, that there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from, is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment and employment? <laughs> For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom. God is the one who gives wisdom. God is the one who gives knowledge. God is the one who gives joy. So life in God's world then, it's a gift, not gain. It's a gift, not gain. The preacher means to just screw that notion into our perspective of life. And in our text, he does that by showing how he pursued gain in the world. And what he realized at the end of his pursuit. When all said and done, he, he's left staring at this cold, hard fact of life's brutal emptiness. And yet, his conclusion in the face of this, this reality of emptiness is remarkably, ultimately positive. And it is profound. Doug Wilson summarizes it this way. The gift of God does not make this meaninglessness go away. The gift of God makes this vanity enjoyable. Now I want to direct your attention to this text. Three different angles and we will see how the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, arrives at this point. Namely, that life is a gift from God to be enjoyed, to be enjoyed, and yet not mastered toward the end of our own personal gain. First, first angle here has to do with our universal desire. We all have something in common. It is safe to say that just about everything that you have done so far today was to make yourself happy. You fed yourself, I assume. Ate something. You uh, hopefully washed up and you know, brush the little sweaters off of your teeth. I, that's what I have. You know, I get up in the morning, it feels fuzzy, and I brush the little sweaters off my teeth. You dressed yourself. You, you came to this worship gathering. Why? Because at least, 
Does, you know, you believed it was the right thing to do, and of course doing the right thing makes you a lot happier than the guilt you feel if you don't do the right thing. Blaise Pascal, we've quoted him before, famously he says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, namely to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. They believe it'll just be make everybody, including themselves, more happy. So what we all long for and live for is happiness on the surface of our lives and at the deepest level of our, our lives in, in all of our pursuits, whether it's earning a living, finding a spouse, raising good children, having fun, keeping fit, we exhibit a universal desire that is to be happy. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes is no different than the rest of us. He set out to explore all that is done under heaven. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, heart, come now, self, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And he offers this reason for doing that. Chapter 2, verse 3. I searched till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So this is a representative quest. You know, he's, this, this is every person. He has had more resources. <laughs> He's had more resources. The quest of every human being for satisfaction and meaning in life. He, and he boils it all down really to the most common categories. He gave himself to, to um, education and learning. Chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. That's, there's enjoyment in that for some. He gave himself to fun, laughter, comedy. Chapter 2, verse 2, entertainment. He gave himself to alcohol. Makes people feel better. Chapter 2, verse 3. He gave himself to the pursuit of beauty. Chapter 2, verse 4. He pursued nature. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Beauty. Beauty of nature. Creation. He pursued money and material possessions, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He, he gave himself to the pleasure of music, chapter 2, verse 8. He gave himself to the pursuit of, of the pleasure of sexual intimacy with many, many women, chapter 2, verse 8. He gave himself to the pursuit of affirmation, the affirmation of people. Chapter 2, verse 9. He gave himself to the, the pleasure of getting things done, projects, hard work, checking off your to-do list. Chapter 2, verse 11. And loved ones, here's the thing. Make no mistake about this. These are real joys. They really do produce pleasure. The preacher says so in verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in my toil. 
And this was my reward for all my toil. It made him happy. He doesn't say, ah, you know what? You know, I've tried everything. I've pursued pleasure in everything you can imagine. And, and there, you know, there's just no joy in it. And we would go, come on, come on. There is pleasure. He held real happiness in his hands. The existential feeling of pleasure is not what is in question. The question is, as real and as intense as the pleasures of getting into the best school, getting, you know, having academic achievement, entertainment, wine bars, art, organic gardening, outdoor adventures, completing your to-do list, working long and hard, asserting power and influence and buying stuff, buying lots and lots of stuff. And of course, sex, as much sex as a man with money and the power, all the money and power that anybody could ever dream of, as tangible as those pleasures are, they're like water. These run right through your fingers, disappear down the drain. This preacher, he's an A-list celebrity. He is secure at the top of Forbes billionaire list. He, he lived, he lived, let's be honest, he lived what every one of us fantasizes about. In our daydreams, that's what we want. And as real as all those pleasures are, and as much as we'd all honestly love to have his life, even if, even if it was just, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that for a test drive. I'd be happy doing that. Verse, verse 11 is the sum of it. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It didn't last. It was. That's it. Zach Eswine, poetically, um, he's just such a pleasing writer. He summarizes it like this. A woman stranded on an island may possess three board games. Yahtzee, Scrabble, and Sorry. Every night. There's always options for fun. But the options never change on an island she cannot leave. Even the covenant goodness of sexual intimacy as described in the Song of Solomon. You know, just forget about promiscuity with gazillions of people. Even if, you, even if you're faithful, the covenant goodness of sexual intimacy is described in the Song of Solomon. It isn't the provider of our ultimate gain. Because deep into middle age, some of you know this, uh, and fully one with wide smile of their satisfying bodily love, they reach for their robes and the bones pop and the joints ache. I know what it is to look to music to make my heart whole. 
As a young man, I'd turn up the radio, close my eyes, and lose myself in voice, melody, and rhythm. When the song ends, we have to open our eyes again. And the sunless morning still waits for us to enter it. The dishes dirty in the sink still wait for soap. A man works all his life with a company. He retires, receives a pen and a pat on the back. And that moment, that moment of seeing the work is the best the work can offer. Affirmation and fame feel wonderful. But each is a gypsy, a wanderer who fidgets to leave as soon as it arrives. In the end, whether it's achievements or pleasures, none of them last. They don't endure. It's not that they're not enjoyable. They are, but not one of them. Learning, laughter, alcohol, art, nature, money, possession, sex, power, rock and roll. None of them can stop that which is coming for each and every one of us. That leads to the second reality that supports the point that life is simply a gift to be enjoyed and not mastered. Namely, our inescapable dilemma. It's been said that death speaks all languages. Death stalks both the wise and the foolish. whether, Whether it's a wise person or a foolish person, godly person or an ungodly person, do whatever they will with their lives, do it differently. In time, they will be indistinguishable. They'll be dead. Chapter 2, verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. We know what that event is. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. Verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone else who did not toil for it. Gave, gave my heart up to despair over that. Death is our universal and in, inescapable dilemma. My, my dad, whom I think of on this Father's Day, he was probably the most self-sufficient person I've ever known. He could, do, he could just do anything and did things he shouldn't do like pull his own teeth and you know I mean, he was he's another generation but you know he's very independent um, when I was four years old he designed and built our family home 
by himself. It took him two years of very skillful labor, weeknights, weekends, after his day job. He poured himself into that property. It was really a display, a beautiful place. And it was his dream home with my mother for 45 years. And it nearly drove him out of his mind, literally, when he and my mother had to leave it for assisted living. It's the way it is with independent rural folk. And um, today, somebody else lives in that house that my dad toiled with his knowledge and experience and skill to build and maintain. 45 years of investment. And it is not without real, real profound sadness that when, if, when I have occasion to drive through my hometown and I pass you know, the home place, I identify with the preacher. This also is vanity. Gone. That's it. I, 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 my, I, my heart feels the despair over the toil of my dad's labors. Um, and loved ones, the preacher means for us to feel that sadness. This is a holy lament. He wants us to see and sense how far from God's original design we have all fallen. Zach Eswine says, Once it was good enough for a man and a woman to have God and the good gifts God gave, even if it meant that there was a tree and a fruit that existed, but not for them. Now, even though we are surrounded by opportunities to laugh or drink or work or make money, none of it is enough. We are not satisfied, and this is the key phrase, death stomps on all of it. Sin did that. We did that. And loved ones, God, let it be so. He let it be so, so that it might be Him and Him alone who would take care of death and all that ruined the world. He did it so that at the right time, the promised one would come. And so that the ultimate expression of His joy, the ultimate expression and manifestation of His pleasure and His love, namely the cross, would stand. And the tomb would be empty. And death itself would die. And the beauty of His mercy and the beauty of His grace might stand forth as the ultimate object of our pleasure. A wise person has said that the sharpness of death pierces all our pretensions of ultimate happiness. (laughs) Only if you prepare to die and to die well can you really learn how to live. And that that brings us to the, the last point or last angle in this text has to do with God's reorienting design. 
our ultimate desire, the ultimate dilemma, universal design, ultimate dilemma, and then God's reorienting design. In light of the preacher's personal narrative here in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through chapter 2, his summary, his summary of life, it, it doesn't seem like much, kind of kind of disappointing initially. Look at verse chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. <laughs> At first, first glance, you, you kind of go, that, that doesn't sound like much more than some disappointing, you know, creed of the, you know, the, foolish rebel, eat and drink and party on, tomorrow we die. Might sound that way. Some would say eat, drink and party on because that's all there is. But the preacher says eat, drink and party on because that's what there is. That's what there is. God is the giver of all the good things of this world to us. And they are, in and of themselves, their own reward. Listen, when we accept in a deep way that we're going to die, the reality of that perspective can restrain us from expecting too much from all the good things that we may pursue. You get that? The pers- when we accept that we're going to die, the reality of that perspective, it, it has a restraining effect from us expecting too much from all the good things that we may pursue. It reorients us in our pursuit of them. None of those things in and of themselves are wrong or more like a moral issue. But the problem is, is that uh, when we make them the things that we need to be and to have in order to make us happy that they are the end in and of themselves. And we have to manage them. You see, death confronts us with our limitations as creatures. And it helps us to see God's gifts, good gifts, right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. And so instead of using the gifts as a means to the end of securing some gain and mastery and control of this world, we we're, we rather simply enjoy living in the good of the gifts as a means to finding pleasure in God Himself. And then they're right. See, ordinarily, I think we, you know, we eat and drink simply as fuel to enable us to keep on going, do our work. Or ordinarily, we, we would work not just to earn a living, but to find some satisfaction, purpose, and very likely make a reputation for ourselves and achieve some success. But what if, what if the pleasure of the food is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? 
or it's an idol that controls us. What if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous? What if it's death that clears all that up and shows us that this is how we're meant to live? So you see, at the heart of the human condition is a fundamental unwillingness to accept things as they really are. So on the one hand, you know, we, we long for lives of permanence in this world of constant change. We pour our energy out to achieve lasting, you know, and, and on the other hand, we, we long for change all the time in this world of permanent repetition and, and fantasize how to adjust that and make it all different. I, I believe that's what the preacher was, was actually doing in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. He, he, all of these efforts that he expends to make gardens and parks and he's planting trees, fruit trees, and establishing pools and forests. Doesn't that sound strangely similar, reminiscent to Eden? And it's, as, it's as though the, the, the preacher is aiming to re, at recreating God's good and perfect world. It can't be done. The world in which we live is fallen and cursed. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. One commentator says, God has placed a fracture in the fabric of the universe and things are now not what they should be. And we know that. We experience it every day. We are limited because we're creatures. And because we're fallen creatures, we now have inbuilt flawed assumptions about what it means to live in the world. And our default system is to use the world around us, use work, use possessions, use relationships as some leverage for our own personal, our own purposes to achieve our own goals. That they are the tools that we use to master life for our own ends. But the preacher's whole point here, I repeat, is to show us that the world cannot be leveraged to just suit me. Life is a gift from God to be enjoyed, not mastered. Perhaps you you already noticed this, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14 through chapter 2, verse 23, God has been entirely absent from the writer's frame of reference. It's just all striving, self-ruling, self-determining, self-asserting, I, I, I is, is right at the center. But in verses 24 to 26 of chapter 2, God is now mentioned three times. Boom, boom, boom. And the focus is on what God gives. What God gives. What God gives. Look at it again. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. 
So, so endless enjoyment doesn't come in the box with your smartphone. If it did, we wouldn't be so quick to be always considering an upgrade. We've all had a taste of the good things life has to offer and, and know what it is to still be left wondering what comes next. Ecclesiastes tells us that it is God who gives us joy. Or else, the thing, whatever it is, diploma, entertainment, body, beverage, bank account, whatever, whatever the thing is itself, is going to leave us unsatisfied. Jesus said it like this, Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why would anybody want to do that? Why would anybody want to lay up treasures on in heaven? Why would you want to put your trust totally in God and pursue your joy in Him. That's because Jesus also said in Matthew 13, 44 to 46, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Friends, God is calling you and me to trust Him and to pursue our joy in Him. And He makes no apologies for this because we would never regret it. Why not? It's because He is the only sure hope for future joy. And His promises absolutely, totally, infinitely surpass anything that this world has to offer. Life is a gift from God to be enjoyed, not mastered. Let's pray. Lord, there are good things that you have given to us today for which we are so thankful. Thankful for life, thankful for health, thankful for employment, we're thankful for relationships. We're thankful for homes. We're thankful for meaningful tasks. We're we're thankful for skills and learning. We're thankful for the ability to grow and uh, be lifelong learners. We're thankful, Lord, for all the things in this life, food and entertainment and intimacy. We're thankful, God, for... um, just the sweetness of creation, the beauties around us. Thankful for music. We're thankful for art. We're thankful for laughter. Just laugh out loud till you cry laughter. We're thankful for every good thing that you have given. We acknowledge it, Lord, that that it is you that have given us all these things. And they all come to an end. They're all temporary until our ultimate joys in heaven. And so I pray, Father, that you'd give us a right perspective on all that you've given to us. 
Give us the right framework for thinking, feeling, engaging. Help us to to be humble and yielded to the things that, if they're crooked, who who are we to make them straight? If, if you have made things crooked, who, there's no possibility that we could straighten them. And so we turn to you. We look to you with gratitude for what you've given. We look to you for wisdom. We look to you for humble yieldedness with with all that is before us. You are God. We are not. Great God in heaven. You are God. And we are not. And we just want to live. For you. And for your glory. Empower us to do so. Through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.